0: More and more, you know, especially since the, the last administration that was in office, everyone's like, Oh my god, he's a fascist but would you have like a a quick thing, like someone's like like I would t- I would try and tell people, Well, we've actually been a fascist country since pretty much World War One, World War Two ish time frame, like would you have like a, a decent quick explanation to a friend or a layman on the street that to explain that?
1: Well, I think there's two separate questions here. Okay. First of all, there is what there is what we think about the Trump administration. Right. Um, and is it akin to fascism? I think exactly the opposite. I think it, he was standing up against fascist tendencies. Okay. Um, I am, in fact, a Darwinist for Donald Trump um, and uh, an atheist for Donald Trump. Uh, and um, I think, you know, that he was the reaction. He wasn't the... the Crisis. He was the reaction to the crisis, and the crisis is the gang that has taken over now, and that is and the woke crowd and all this. And this is very alarming. In that they do have very totalitarian views on canceling people and censoring people, and so on. It is very. It's, I would never have guessed this could happen. Uh, it's very ominous. Uh, so, so I'm very much pro Trump. I hope he. I hope he um, runs in '24 and gets elected. And if not, I hope it's someone like. Um, the, the governor of Florida, who's a, a good guy and a Trumpist, uh, and, and I hope we get some reversal of some of the things that have been going on. Um, so, and I think that's desperately important, actually. So much is it important that I've had trouble with immigration recently, because although I've been in this country 40 years and have an American wife, I have two American wives, actually, this is my current one, um, and, uh, and, th- and four American kids. I'm st- I only had a green card. I lost it, didn't report it, and now I found all kinds of things that I, I might be in trouble with, so I'm keeping a low profile, but uh, but if I do get citizenship, which I will apply for as soon as I get my green card back, um, I'm pl- planning to join the Republican Party. I think, I think oh, the, the, the Libertarian boy. Party is a complete waste of time, um, and I think there are sections of the Libertarian Party that do nothing but suck up to the left, like Cato now is doing nothing but sucking well. up to the left. Um,
2: really part of the Libertarian
1: Party. Uh, uh, so anyway, um, there's that's that. But anyway, going back to fascism, the real nub of your question, you weren't interested in these trivial Which ones.
2: I don't think he was a fascist, but Of well, course not. No,
1: but he was, a, he was like a, I think he was the
2: definition of fascism. I think
1: I think the thing is this. Fascism is used very loosely. Yeah. If it means the abolition of democracy and the substitution of a one party police state, which is what how some people use it, right? Um, although they don't, for some peculiar reason, won't apply it to common states. Uh, um, so it, let's say it's, a, it's the abolition of democracy and the, in the uh, establishment of one party police state, but preserving at least formal private property and industry. Let's say that's fascism. Um, that's the way a lot of people use the term now. Right? I'm not saying it's defensible use, but it's the way people use the term. Um, uh, you know, that... Uh, obviously that's, uh, that's a bad thing and we should, we should tr- oppose it and try and resist any move in that direction. Um, I d- have got this article, The Mystery of Fascism, which became the title of my collection of my previously published articles. Now, so a pile of the books over there um, and anybody, I, I'm willing to uh, let them go for the amazingly cheap price of $20 a piece. Uh, and so I do have something to say about fascism in there, about the origin of fascism. Um, and it, uh, it's very interesting because uh, Mussolini um, was, was a Marxist and a socialist and was the most important figure in the Italian Socialist Party up until 1919 when he took the step of supporting, um, supporting Italy in the, in the war, which was the First World War. Uh, and up till then all socialists all members of the italian socialist party had been anti-war and in fact uh mussolini had served time in prison for his participation in anti-war demonstrations he was a real marxist socialist the working class has no country and so on he switched his ideas and the first spectacular sign of this was that he supported the war and he supported um and there is evidence evidence came to light later that that British intelligence was feeding him money because they wanted to get in Italy into the war on the Allied side which and they succeeded Um, but not not because of Mussolini because he was he remained uh, um, out of power uh, but he was kicked out of the Socialist Party and became and so uh, he was wounded in the war although as the result of an artillery accident, so it wasn't heroic, but he was wounded um, and then at the end of the, at the end of the war he was um a pro war socialist and therefore the the veterans who were coming back from the war and being beaten up by the left the socialists and the newly formed communist party um, uh, they he had a bond with them uh, and so um uh he he um he set up the fascist movement in, uh, officially in 1919, right? almost exactly the same time as the Communist International was set up, in which the communist parties separated themselves from all the other socialist parties on on all kinds of principles, but really only one principle: they did what Moscow told them and what Moscow paid them to do. Right, so that was that was the big division that all these people joined the communist. Party. So that both happened in 1919. Actually, early nineteen around the same time. Um, so, so why did Mussolini make this change? He was very erudite, very well read, very intelligent, didn't very he sharp. Carry
2: the prince with him? Is
1: he mm-hmm. some, didn't he carry the prince with him, Machiavelli? Oh, yeah. I mean, he. he, he but he was a. He was a, a, He was a very well-read Marxist, um, and I explain in my article the mystery of fascism, part of the story. Um, Essentially, there was a movement in syndicalism. Syndicali- the situation, right? let's say 1910, was that socialism as an ideology had become more and more homogenous. In other words, if you go back earlier, let's say to the early 19th century, the, 18, the 1830s, 40s, when the word socialism started coming into fashion, uh, there were, it meant all kinds of things. Any, all kinds of different things could be called socialism. By the end of the 19th century, uh, one form of socialism had uh, pr- uh, come to predominate over all the others, and that's what I call uh, Neo-Saint-Simonian socialism. Saint-Simon was a socialist who made no bones about the fact that he was opposed to democracy, and he wanted an elite... Of scientists and bankers and industrialists to rule over the masses. Uh, then there was a guy in, who's very little known called Pierre Leroux who was a, a French theorist who combined Saint-Simon's ideas with democracy and introduced the idea that socialism would be the, the greatest fulfillment of democracy. So that's the kind of socialism that prevailed um, at, at, the, at the very beginning of the 20th century. Um, so so as it, as it con, con, coagulated and congealed and became the dominant form of socialism, um, there was only one thing to the left of it. This is before the Russian Revolution, right? There was, and that was syndicalism. So if you were someone whose, whose, whose personality was such, you wanted to be as left as you could be, you became a syndicalist. So you, and, you, and you derided the socialist uh, parties who were trying to go through the parliamentary system and and take uh, power by majority vote and introduce um, essentially the state ownership of everything, right? <laughs> so, uh, so, in, so instead of that p- policy, if you were a syndicalist, you supported the general strike as the means to get power, uh, and instead of nationalizing everything, the workers on the factory floor organizing from the bottom up to control industry. So that was that was a syndicalism. So these syndicalists. Um, Their their, their thinking evolved, and gradually more and more of the prominent syndicalists in southern Europe, especially in France and Italy, um, they they began to realize that there was going to be no socialist revolution in the advanced industrial countries. And therefore, according to Marxism, they had no hope. They had no hope, rather, uh, because the only hope was, uh, according to Marx, Socialism had to come in the, in the advanced industrial countries. It became apparent to, to certain people that that wasn't going to happen so there was no sign in the United States of a big socialist movement, and even in Germany, Germany was the most promising but even then uh, they, they looked as though it was beginning to dawn on people that although they'd been growing in strength, they were never going to get an, a really crushing majority right so so what so what there were there, there were these There was this evolution of ideas within the syndicalist movement, and one of the things that they decided was that um, uh, that the only hope for a backward country like Italy uh, was rapid industrial development, and that had to be done by capitalists because they were the only people who knew how to do this. Um, but it would, wouldn't be laissez-faire or anything like that, but it was the right kind of capitalism. So, they, so, and the other thing that they decided was that wars and nationalism was not such a bad thing after all. <laughs> it was a good thing. Um, uh, and, and so Mussolini was this leading figure in the Italian Socialist Party who didn't leave and join the syndicalists, but he paid close attention to what they were saying. And in fact, uh, Mussolini started, he was editor of the official socialist journal, Avanti, um, uh, but he started his own discussion journal called Utopia, in which all kinds of Marxists uh, had discussions. Um, Some of them later become very, very famous Marxists. uh, And um, uh, uh, about what, what was the future. And the theme was... Let's not be dogmatic. Let's look at all the premises of Marxism and be prepared to um, kick them over if necessary. Let's find something that works. And you have to understand that these people were thoroughly imbued with the conviction that old-fashioned liberalism was a thing of the past and couldn't possibly have any future. Laissez-faire was just laughable. That was their view. Um, And it was bourgeois, furthermore. And although most of these people were bourgeois themselves, uh, they hated the bourgeois, right? They hated the bourgeoisie. They, they, they were bourgeois who spat on the bourgeois. Um, so um, although Mussolini was an exception, he came from a very humble working class background. Um, and, um, you know, in fact, um, in his teens, he was uh, wandering around Switzerland, or at least the part of Switzerland that had a lot of Italian migratory laborers, and... Um, uh, uh, and uh, almost starving, um, but then eventually he got a job, and, he, and uh, you know became this um, kind of. And that was where they first started calling him Duce. He was the leader of the of the migratory socialist laborers in in uh, Lausanne. Well, uh, there's a part of Switzerland called La Suisse Romande, which mean, which is the French speaking part of Switzerland. Uh, and at that time, it had a lot of Italian migratory laborers and. And a lot of them were very impoverished. They came from Italy because they were so stuck close to salvation, tried to find jobs, and they got them. And um, Mussolini was one of these people. Uh, so Mussolini followed all this. And he, so his convictions followed these advanced thinkers among the syndicalists who were becoming, they were turning to productivism. In other words, there's something wrong with advocating rapid industrial development and then having pointless, ruinous strikes. You're destroying industrial development, and this, this can't be tolerated. You've got to stop strikes and uh, increase production. So this was part of it. It was called productivism. Um, there was a brief period where, of about a year where it was a, a trendy thing in the syndicalist movement to say, we'll take over the factories and run them. But, but that went rules, uh, uh, right we'll, two years right yeah right right well, so we'll run them and we'll show how it can be done that didn't last <laughs> you know um, but but that was but, but on a broader, broader scale productivism instead of this destructive class struggle we want to unite the bourgeoisie not the bad bourgeoisie the moneylenders and people like that but the people who are really making a contribution to economic growth uh, we want to uh, unite with them uh, and we want the labour movement and the capitalists or the progressive part of the capitalists to unite uh, and increase production so one of the things a lot of people just don't understand about fascism as it was put forward by Mussolini first of all that it was a movement that existed essentially no later than 1910 right. It was, wasn't something that Mussolini suddenly dreamed up. And it wasn't empty of ideological content. There was a vast amount of theory involved in this. In endless theoretical debates and discussions. Uh, but it was, it, was, um, it was a modernizing movement. And everything about the fascists told you this. You know, Mussolini had this bright red sports car and he used to tour around the hills. You know, and, uh, and, uh, and aviators and people like this were identified with the with and uh, that time aviators were like spacemen today, space uh, space uh, explorer uh, cosmonauts, whatever, whatever the Russians called. Uh, so, um, so, so so fasci- this fascism, as Mussolini called, started to call it fascism um, be, from an Italian word which means essentially league or or association, uh, and um, that was in 1919. He pro- he. Proclaimed uh, in the Pia- Piazza San Sepolcro in Milan, uh, this um, this new movement, and this, this sort of picks up what was the role for Mussolini when he'd been a pro-war socialist, right? So this is his new movement, um, and, um, and but it was it was these syndical, productivist, syndicalist nationalist ideas. Uh, not absolutely no trace of anti-Semitism. Jews were welcome, and in fact they were hugely represented in the fascist movement from. Um, 1919 onwards until 1938 when uh, as part of the deal with hitler he had to introduce anti-semitic measures uh, but uh, uh, that, so that was that was one of the tragic outcomes of all this so that was that was what fascism was uh, in 1919 and mussolini so what happened was there were these black shirts who were who were officially part of Mussolini's movement, although they, ha- they went their own way sometimes and they got impatient with Mussolini and they forced him to do certain things he didn't want to do. Um, they would break up strikes. Uh, so if there was a big strike in, a, in a called by the left in a town, the black shirts would come in, beat up the strikers and prevent... and And everybody... The general public would leave a sigh of relief. Things are back to normal. The trains are running again. You know, <laughs> um, all this disorder has stopped uh, because of the black shirts. So that was the that was the tone. And then it got worse and worse. And then <clears throat> Mussolini staged the march on Rome. And this was pure theatre. There was no Mussolini didn't have the capacity to take over the government by force. That was absolute uh, nonsense, and everybody knew that. But. There was the idea that these black shirts could put a stop to this leftist violence. Um, And eventually, uh, the King of Italy um, asked Mussolini to become Prime Minister. Uh, And and that wasn't good enough. (laughs) That wasn't good enough. He begged Mussolini to become Prime Minister. Uh, And Mussolini eventually, after thinking about it, uh, accepted and became the, the youngest Prime Minister in Italian history. Uh, and at first, it wasn't clear what way this was going to go because um, the fascists had got ideas. They were they were anti bourgeois. They wanted a revolution. They wanted to smash the the, the sort of uh, horrible bourgeois mentality. Um, and uh, uh, but they were they were against Marxism. And now they were fighting the Marxists every day in the streets. So they got more serious about that. Um, but uh, then they had this big, long debate about what the nature of the state should be under, which had never been defined in fascism, and they eventually decided uh, on this totalitarian system. And in fact, you know, the f- first use of the word totalitarian was an Italian liberal, in our sense of the term, a real liberal, critic of uh, fascism, who called it totalitarian. The, the fascists picked this up and said, yes, we have totalitarians. We want the state to have absolute power, of course. They also, uh, they combined this with the view that the state shouldn't outright nationalize anything and there was very little outright nationalization under, under the Mussolini regime because this was part of their inherited uh, set of ideas. So, but th- so that's, that's all part of the origin of, of fascism, that's where it came from. And then later, um, you, so after Mus- from Mussolini becoming prime minister to Hitler becoming chancellor is 11 years. A period in in day to day politics that's quite a long time, you know. And and most of that time, people, diplomats, like you know, the people who really can tell you what's what's what because they know because they're experts, would tell you that Mussolini is the person we can rely upon to stand up to Hitler. Um, And uh, there was, in fact, um, uh, an attempted coup by the local National Socialists in Austria to oust the um, the government and, and make uh, Austria a national socialist state and presumably apply for uh, f- apply for um, <coughs> membership in the Third Reich eventually and Mussolini put troops in to stop that uh, un- unfortunately the the Prime Minister of Austria was killed in that a whole set of events but Mussolini put troops in and stopped it and there was actually a fire between Austrian Nazis and, and, uh, and Mussolini's Italian troops uh, and so This was a clear signal to everybody. You know, if we want to stop Hitler, Mussolini is the man to do it, and that was the that was accepted doctrine in diplomatic circles for several years. Um, So, uh, of course, later it all changed, (laughs) and um, uh, you know, and but then, uh, the left had a theory about what fascism was, and this theory led them to apply it to National Socialist Germany as well as to Nazi Germany, and also they applied to the Spanish nationalists and various other groups. And their theory was that according to according to Karl Marx's economic analysis, uh, um, capitalism was entering a phase where the falling rate of profit is part it's part of Marx's analysis in capital that the rate of profit must fall. Uh, and that endangers the existence of the capitalist system. Um, and so... Um, uh, in order to in order to uh, stave off this, their doom, the capitalist class got together and decided to bamboozle the workers with with um, high-flown speeches and mummery and banners and hymns uh, and get them to support a fascist party in order to. Uh, prolong the existence of capitalism. Um, so that was the Marxist theory. Of course, it's in every respect totally false. But that was the Marxist theory. So as a result of that, what you find is if you look at if you read leftist publications uh, in the in the in the thirties, when they're, when they're talking about fascism, they're talking about Nazi Germany. They hardly pay any attention to fascist, fascist Italy. That they use the word fascism. Orwell is an example. Orwell's a leftist of this period, and uh, Orwell constantly talks about fascism, and he means National Socialist Germany. That's all he means by it. Um, uh, so, um, uh, so then you've so by you know you've got this, and of course the fascists, if if we use this term, meaning. Uh, Fascist Italy and National Socialist Germany lost the war, and we know what happens to people who lose wars. They don't write the history, <laughs> so the left wrote the history. Uh, and um, and um, you know, uh, I'm glad they lost the war, by the way. But uh, but um, uh, but so that's 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 really the background of fascism. What did the? By the way,
3: yes.
2: <laughs> um what did
1: the black shirts force mussolini to do that he didn't want to do oh uh, i you know um there there were all these occasions where he was looked as though he was going to make an accommodation mm. with the king and with the uh, with the with the liberal majority in the in the italian parliament um and um uh you know, he had to back away from that and maintain a kind of intransigence. Mm. And as we know, there is this similarity between Mussolini and Hitler. Their intransigence... The moustache? The wearing of a moustache? Mussolini didn't have a moustache. Never? I don't know if he ever did, uh, but he didn't in his that just shows how ignorant i am later years stalin is the one you're I thinking, thinking of who had a mustache no i, th- I mean I thought a every dictator, dictator had, had i thought i, I thought a mustache uh, was maybe a prerequisite
2: maybe. of being a dictator
1: no um, uh, i th- i'm thinking of that guy for some reason in in the godfather who gets jammed in the door as he tries to leave in embarrassment he, he's a little italian with a mustache like mussolini must have been but but i, I don't he didn't have a mustache did he when he was uh, when he was in power um so so basically uh, the intransigence now in hitler's case it was very different because hitler didn't have to fear any internal dissension he he did have to fear a sort of uh that his followers would grow impatient with the lack of forward movement, um, and uh, he constantly complimented them on their forbearance and patience while he had to do these difficult negotiations. Uh, but but um, but both Hitler and uh, Mussolini. Had this in common that they benefited from their reputation for intransigence because right. it meant if you had to bu- if you wanted to buy them off you really had to pay a price you know right. you couldn't they couldn't be fobbed off with something minor you had to give them in the case of of Hitler the chancellorship in the case of Mussolini prime ministership um, so so the
2: black shirts ensured that Mussolini would take a hard line and wouldn't be compromising
1: right, right yes. They were always afraid. The the black shirts were. I mean, Hitler never had the the control over the fascist movement. That that, uh, Mussolini never had the control over the fascist movement that Hitler had over the over the um, Nazi Party. uh, You know, Hitler had really strong control. There was, there was. You know, he could eliminate anybody uh, if he moved quickly in the right circumstances, which he always did. Whereas Mussolini was never an absolute sort of tyrant in the way that Hitler was. Mussolini always had to do fancy footwork to placate various uh, interest groups and of course he did all kinds of things I mean he um, he, he was a, had been a lifelong atheist who had written a passionate um, uh, um, memorial to the to the uh, execution of uh, Giordano Bruno uh, uh, who who was somebody executed by essentially by the Catholic Church not technically but essentially by the Catholic Church for propounding such heresies as um, that uh, those nebulae we see in the sky are actually star systems just like our Milky Way you know that kind of thing was obviously the sort of thing that would get you burnt at the stake uh, when the Catholic Church had power so um, you know so Mussolini wrote this thing about Giordano Bruno and he also wrote a popular novel. He, in a, like in a couple of weekends. He this shows how talented he was. He he dashed off a, be, a best-selling sort of mystery romance novel to make money, uh, and it was and it's all anti clerical It's full of anti-clerical stuff. But once he was prime minister, he immediately um, uh, announced that he re- recently <laughs> recently be converted to Christianity, and um, uh, and it became a close collaborator with the Vatican. And in fact. He, one, he had m- many enduring achievements, Mussolini, and one of them was he solved the, the, the long-standing Roman question, which is the whole question of the Pope as a political leader. You know, because quite recently in history, a large chunk of Italy had been directly ruled by the papacy. And, um, and uh, so the whole question of how... So Mussolini came up with a formula that was face-saving for the Catholic Church but would, and preserved the, the sovereignty of the Vatican. Uh, and 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 uh, you know was basic, and that's what caused Winston Churchill to uh, to uh, praise Mussolini as the greatest living legislator, um, and um, you know that he was he was a miracle worker. Uh, he also drained the Pontine Marshes, which ever since Julius Caesar, rulers of Italy, <laughs> tried to do and never got round to because they procrastinated. Mussolini just got it done. Uh, he made the trains run on time which everybody remembers. He made the trains run on on time by smashing the socialist trade unions who were responsible for the fact the trains didn't run on time. There was nothing... The the actual administrators of the Italian railroad network were not incompetent. It's just the unions kept on sabotaging everything. Uh, So, um, for leftist uh, revolutionary motives. So, um, yeah, so that was Mussolini. And, you know, Mussolini, one of the things you notice about him right away is that... um, Benito is not a, an Italian name it's a Spanish name uh, his father was, um, was uh, uh, an extreme leftist who greatly admired um, the, uh, the, the Mexican revolutionary Benito Suarez um, and, um, and named his son after this, uh, this great revolutionary uh, so he was, he was brought up on revolutionary socialist doctrine and embraced it could
2: you talk about? Well, he sounds like an awfully great guy. This Mussolini. Yeah, no, they, actually, I need to. I need to read a couple of his books. He, um, no, he w-
1: Mussolini was was um, was quite intelligent. Um, and um, uh, the Munich Agreement, where they brought him in, because he still had this lingering. There was still this lingering idea he was the man who could stand up to Hitler. Um, uh, and, and you know, they carved up Czechoslovakia and gave the Sudetenland back to. If you want to be cynical, back to the people who lived there, who were Germans and wanted to be part of Germany, um, you know. So that was the, that was the Munich thing. Um, but um, uh, there were four official languages in, that the Munich discussion was conducted in. And Mussolini was the only person present who could follow the discussion in all four of these languages, and that was all self-taught. I mean, he didn't go to university or anything. When he was when he was a starving uh, teenage migratory labourer in Lausanne. Uh, as soon as he got a job and started, what did he do? What, what use did he make of his time? He audited Vilfredo Pareto's lectures at the university. Mm. That was the first thing he did. You know, um, he was a he was, a, you know, in many ways had a scholarly bent. Mm. Um,
0: the the relationship between like after World War One, like the Habsburg. You know, that ruling class, the aristocracy mm-hmm. fell apart. The you know, the Romanovs were killed by the Bolsheviks. I right. imagine that kind of you know, a lot of the wealthier people in Europe were pretty scared. Um so could you talk about kind of the relationship between the old aristocracy, the industrialists, the bourgeoisie, capitalists, and how that affected the you know, the kind of political landscape of
1: well, of course, the, the old aristocracy in many of these countries was rapidly declining in influence. Um, but, um, you know, uh, in Italy, uh, the King of Italy remained the King of Italy all throughout. You know, it's, it's only after the war that, that, that Italy ceased to be a monarchy. Um, uh, you know, um, so. Um, I don't, I don't know uh, much about the the aristocracy in some of these Eastern European countries. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the Bolshevik the Bolshevik uh, killing of the royal family was uh, was certainly not a popular measure in, in Russia, but what did they care? Um, I mean, the thing is that I think that, that in terms of Western European perceptions, you got this idea uh, on the left, uh, you know, oh, um, we have to support the communists or make accommodation with the communists because fascism is such a great danger. And then you got on the right the idea, maybe we should consider doing a deal with the fascists because communism is such a great danger. You know, so the, each of them uh, played up the danger of the other. Uh, and uh, they, those horrible people, will, t- yeah, well, they were equally horrible, actually. <laughs> well, I think, actually, the communists were a bit more horrible than the, than the fascists, although maybe the Nazis managed to equal the communists in their horribleness. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, um, uh, this, this is the sort of game that was played. And, I mean, it's, it, it's, if you look at the countries where no kind of Nazi, or Nazi-style or fascist-style movement ever attained any significant following like in britain and ireland um you find it was still a big issue you know that the communists would organize there was a guy called oswald mosley who was um uh, a member of the old aristocracy of england um he was also a glamorous figure he was an olympic sabre champion um and uh, very handsome very dashing um and uh, he he was first of all Hailed as the likely greatest ever future conservative prime minister. And then when he joined the Labour Party, he was hailed as the greatest ever future Labour prime minister. And then when he formed the new party, people began to say, oh, what's going on here is a bit of a flake. Uh, And then he formed the, the British Union of Fascists. And all the people who'd been associated with him in the previous started saying, no, we're not with Mosley. <laughs> uh, um, but, but uh, you know, Mosley had was a popular figure, and, and, you know, in the a, in a way that sort of a minority political person can be because he'd been so eminent and because he was this handsome, dashing figure. Uh, and he gave speeches... Uh, and the, the speeches were made into great occasions by the Communist Party that showed up in great numbers and and started uh, attacking the fascists. Uh, so you had these pitch battles in the streets, and that was going on really in one one form or another all over Europe. You know, the 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 the, the Communists were convinced that capitalism was reaching it was in its last throes, and therefore you were going to have, have very intense class struggle, which meant people were going to fight in the streets, um, and the um, the right-wing movements, or what you want to call them quasi-fascist, quasi-Nazi movements, uh, had a different take on things, but they also thought that it was going to come down to, cl- to battles in the streets, you know, so... Um, Self-fulfilling prophecy. So, yeah, and uh, yeah, and it's all, you know, my, my attitude now, when I hear about people Violent confrontation in the streets. Stay at home. <laughs> Keep out of it. <laughs> uh, comment from a distance. Stay um,
2: home. Save lives.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but then I'm 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 uh, 76, so uh, you know I can be forgiven. This you don't kind of look uh, a day above 75. I must say, <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, I thought you were going to say above 77. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah. No, I, I really haven't looked closely at the, at the position of the aristocracy. I mean, um, I mean, Spain is one of the interesting examples of this whole thing because there, unusually, the so-called right-wing fascists won, and that's very unusual. And they did it by being extremely brutal. Uh, you know, um, I've I've often given little talks where I've said, you know. That uh, Franco was never a fascist, and as soon as I say that, such is the image that people have. They think I'm saying he wasn't as bad as fascists. No, he was worse. <laughs> he wasn't a fascist, but he, in terms of his 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 regime and what they did, he was far worse. I mean, Mussolini didn't incarcerate hundreds of thousands of people in concentration camps. You know, um, so people, someone like Antonio Gramsci was. Was under house arrest and was given pen and paper where he could write his stupid uh, things about the Long March through the institutions that inspires the wokeism of our time. You know, I mean, uh, the whole idea that this uh, that this uh, Sardinian uh, communist uh, hunchback should be uh, killed or, or put in solitary would never have occurred to the to the fascist administration. You know, they just wanted to neutralize it. So. Um, yeah. So uh, in in Spain, um, you've got this sort of. Um, first of all, first of all, all these things tend to occur. I wouldn't say it's an. Uh, I wouldn't say it's an iron rule, but uh, they tend to occur after decades of leftist violence, and that's what happened in Spain. the, the left uh, attacked um, Catholics for being Catholic. They raped nuns and then killed them. They desecrated churches and destroyed them. They, they killed monks and they killed priests. Uh, and that was going on continuously in the 20s and 30s. Well, uh,
2: according to Mises, the argument from fascism was, these liberals are never going to do anything to stop the commies, so we need to take radical action. Right. And that was um, what Mises called the argument from fascism, mm-hmm. which he attempted to address in liberalism. Right. In
1: words, yeah, well... Um, unfortunately can things can get to a, a situation where that is the, the reality, you know, the fact that so many perceive it as the reality makes it the reality.
2: I, I think I know what you're saying there, David. <laughs> uh, there comes a point in history where the Antifa have taken over the institutions so much and well, libertarianism well, you know, isn't I mean, really enough. The isn't, thing, the thing uh, is, enough, it's, no, it's, it's an odd kind I of thing. I hope we never get to that stage. It's an odd wink, thing because
1: there, there were a lot of people in the in the Spanish Socialist Party who um, who didn't like the violence and denial of democracy that was being pursued by many socialists. But and so they would make speeches occasionally saying they decried this, but it didn't really. What could they do? The, 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 uh, the, um, the killings of Catholics went on, um, sporadically, uh, repeatedly, over a period. And that was the background of the Spanish Civil War, you know, that um, apart, f- apart from um, if you want to get popular support, enough popular support to get a dictatorship, uh, in a country like Spain, I am not, not
2: saying we do, but if you do want to get enough it's, support, I not... am <laughs> not saying anyone does, but if you do, uh,
1: the point is, it's not a good idea to keep on attacking ca- attacking Catholics just because they're Catholics. Um, and so that, I mean, the fact that the fact that the left had become so identified with anti Catholicism um, was one of the reasons why. The, why Franco's people eventually won yeah. It's one of the reasons why.
4: And in the civil war, didn't, uh, I remember this from the I think it was Granada Television six part documentary on the Spanish Civil War. The left wing anarcho syndicalist movement was bigger in the Spanish left at the start of the civil war, right? But Stalin and the Spanish Communist Party kind of got the upper
1: hand yes. within
4: the Spanish left, and this is what Orwell dealt with. Well, that, that's as right. A I mean, foreign volunteer.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in, in in Spain going in going the civil the war. <laughs> there was a civil war within the left right. going on at the same time as the civil war between left and right. Um, and the Communist Party at the, uh, in 1936 was absolutely minuscule in Spain. Absolutely right. minuscule, but it grew rapidly. Uh, partly because um, uh, Russia was the only, Soviet Union was the only country prepared, people always say to um, give or provide arms to the, to the Republic. Well, they sold it, sold. and they they all of Spain's gold <laughs> reserves were shipped to Moscow right at the beginning. So we know where we stand here. Um, and um, uh, but but you know uh, Stalin did sincerely want the want the uh, the left to win in Spain, and provided them with a lot of. Um, there, there's been some recent revisionist stuff saying that a lot of the deals were swindles, and the and the arms were out were outdated, and all that kind of thing. I'm not, I'm not an expert on that, so the intricacies of that debate, but, um, but um, uh, certainly, um, uh, the, 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 I mean, the Spanish Civil War dramatized, the, the Spanish Civil War, uh, uh, this is uh, difficult to imagine, but it's true, captured the imagination of the left in a way that no other conflict in history, before or since, has ever captured the imagination of the left. I mean, it's not like the war in Vietnam. It's a thousand times more powerful than the war in Vietnam. You know, do you realize that tens of thousands of people from all Western countries, including Britain and the United States, went to Spain, fought for the international brigades, and died in Spain? And many of them we now know died. It's very libertarian of them. And many of them we now know died because... A commissar put a bullet in the back of their head because they were talking out of turn, uh, criticizing the Communist Party. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we don't know which of them were actually killed by nationalists, who the left always insisted on calling fascists, uh, and how many were killed by the bullet in the back of the head from the commissar uh, supplied by the NKVD. Uh, who, you know, the international brigades were completely and utterly controlled by by Moscow, Um, and um, they all had these Soviet commissars watching everybody and listening to what everybody said. Uh, Now, the members were, some of them were communists, many of them weren't. Um, And Orwell was lucky because, because unintentionally he escaped going into the International Brigade, so they put him in, or he eventually ended up fighting for a very minor Marxist group, or the militia of a very minor Marxist group, um, which only had support in and around Barcelona, and it didn't have much support there. Uh, but uh, so Orwell ended up fighting for this thing called the P.O.U.M. Um, P.O.U.M. militia, uh, and um, uh, and Orwell, uh, you know, he he was taken in completely by this communist propaganda, and uh, and he uh, because it sounded so seductive. Let's stop all the class struggle. And, uh, and let's and, and let's make this a purely democratic revolution. That's what the communists were preaching. Of course, when they took power, they didn't want it to be democratic, but that's what they were preaching, right? So it's, we'll get the ma- maximum support if we say this is a, a, a purely democratic thing. It has nothing to do with revolution. Um, so Orwell was convinced by this, and um, uh, up to up until. Um, uh, May third, nineteen thirty-seven. He believed that, um, and then uh, he was on leave in Barcelona, and uh, he t- he was inadvertently caught up in the street fighting. And the street fighting was between. Uh, this was a civil war within the left. The the, the the communists were so few in number, even at that point, that their surrogates were the right wing of the Italian of the Spanish Socialist Party. They were the people that the communists had had under their control. So it was the right wing of the Spanish Socialist Party, who um, who uh, their, their uh, troops, uh, the civil guard, uh, assault guards was their official name, they came into Barcelona and, and tried to take over all, or did take over all the public buildings the public buildings had earlier been taken over by the collectivist uprising of the anarcho-syndicalist masses, <laughs> Whatever, however you want to paint it, by people who were left but not communists. Um, and so the fighting broke out between um, between the communists and the, um, the people to the left of them. Um, and, and Orwell was caught up in that, and he wrote about it very honestly in Homage uh, to Catalonia. Homage to Catalonia, by the way, is the second best-selling book not right now every week the second best-selling book on the Spanish Civil War and you know what the first is it's Hemingway. a work of fiction
4: Hemingway.
1: yeah for whom the bell tolls yeah that's right so uh so um uh so and that and Orwell switched his then then, then Orwell what happened was Orwell sobered up from this... It, Orwell wanted to go to Madrid which is the glamorous place which was holding out to the end uh where this the the um the uh the international brigade which means Moscow was tightly in control and he wanted to go there uh because he would see more action because he wasn't seeing much action but in the fighting French warfare that he was engaged in in Aragon um and so he um so that changed that sobered him up and changed his mind anyway he decided to leave and go back to england but in order to avoid charges of desertion you couldn't just leave when you were on vacation in barcelona you had to go back to the front so he went back to the front uh and um after i don't know whether it was the next day but was certainly within a few days Orwell was an extremely tall person he was like over six foot six really tall i think i Suggest in my book on Orwell that he um, he suffered from the disorder known as acromegaly, which leads to height, big hands, big feet, uh, and a bony face with premature signs of aging. Um, because you know, you look at a picture of Orwell. Uh, he died at the age of forty-six, and before his death, he looks as though he's about seventy-six. Um, anyway, um, so Orwell went back to the front, um, and he he popped his head up. Uh, and a nationalist, so he all called him a fascist, uh, because Orwell was a dogmatic leftist ideologue, uh, um, and uh, with the fact that people find hard to believe, but it's true. Uh, and he died at, uh, um, a uh, dogmatic leftist, doctrinaire ideologue. Uh, so he put his head up, and a, and a bullet went through his throat. Now. In 999 cases out of 1,000, if a bullet goes through your throat, you're not going to live very long. But, uh, in fact, you might say the chances of surviving a bullet going through your throat is about equivalent to, to the chance of dying from COVID, <laughs> if you catch it. You know, it's, it's like less than one in 1,000. So, but, um, but uh, amazingly, this bullet um, missed everything vital. Missed the trachea, missed the uh, carotid artery. Would it be? I think yeah. And missed yeah. all missed all that Trangular. stuff. Uh, missed all that stuff and went right through and came out the other end. But still, he was seriously wounded. He lost his voice for a while, and um, uh, and uh, and he went and was treated in this very dilapidated. He had to leave the front and go to this place that was uh, some miles away uh, and be treated. Um, and uh, it 's possible, highly likely actually, that infections resulting from that helped to cause his death at a fairly early age, so, some years later. Uh, but, um, but so, so so the bullet went through. He, he, he was treated, he, he convalesced, he came back, he came back to Barcelona, and there was this big hotel that all the leftists would stay in. And he went and his wife was was in Barcelona. She got an office job uh, with the POUM, actually, um, uh, so that she could see him occasionally when he was, uh, 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 you know, had a, a sort of leave from the front. Uh, so she was there. So he came into this big hotel and um, he saw his wife, um, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, uh, and, he, and uh, he rushed over to her and said, oh, yeah. And she said, don't say anything. Just follow me and walk out. And he said, what? What's going on? And of course, they were in 1984. This was the police state. They were in a communist state. And everybody connected with the POUM, this leftist group, was being rounded up, tortured and then killed. And they deliberately allowed the women to remain at large because they thought that would help them to to um, uh, to uh, to get the men. Uh, and uh, um, now, um, horrible northern European um, uh, uh, prejudicial uh, picture coming up, fair warning, uh, the Spanish uh, police, like the Italian police, are not all that competent, so they didn't pick him up. So, she, they, so, so, so he and she got out of the hotel, and she explained to him, basically, we're living under a police state, and to say the wrong thing can get you killed. And this took him a while for him to digest this, that this was reality. Um, and if you've had anything to do with the POUM, you're a target and you're, they're going to pick you up as soon as they can. So so what they did was they slept rough uh, in abandoned buildings and bombed out houses and things for a few nights. And then they managed to make their, make their way to a train. They managed to put on an appearance of being conventional English tourists and, and got on a, a train that took them to France and then they came back to um, to London, and of course, what Orwell found was that the, the British press was full of lying stories about the thing he'd lived through in this in the in the May events in in nineteen thirty seven in Barcelona. That they presented they presented it as an uprising by the left, not not as the uh, not as the um, the. Uh, the right wing of the Socialist Party, under the orders of the Communist Party, coming in and clamping down and re- meeting resistance, but uh, they presented it that out of the blue, uh, the, this this leftist group uh, who were in the pay of Hitler and Franco uh, had organized this uprising, and that was the story in nearly all the British press. It was uh, in all the Communist press, Another but uprising
4: against the Spanish Republic, against the country. Spanish Republic,
1: right. in order to uh, in order to uh, to um, aid Franco. Um, and, um, so, uh, so, uh, so this, this is, it's it's unclear whether, whether Orwell's new attitude towards the Communist Party, uh, dates from 3rd of May or from June when he got back to England. Uh, but, but the whole process, uh, and all, that's where he began to realize what you can do by rewriting history. You, you know, you can put out a totally false narrative. And if you get enough of the press to repeat it, everybody takes it as true.
2: I and, can't uh, think of that going you know, on in the so world had any these, time recently. Had these, had these anything shocks, that reminds you know, me of he,
1: he had these shocks of. in rapid succession, and um, uh, and so that so that's why we have Animal Farm in 1984 uh, is because of these shocks that Orwell had in May and June of 1937, uh, and uh, you know when it, and the New Statesman was. Uh, at That time and and probably might still be, but certainly was when I was in England forty years ago. Uh, was the sort of almost the definition of a of a of a middle class leftist intellectual was someone who read the New Statesman um, and the New Statesman. Not they would uh, he he wrote or wrote something submitted it to them and they said we can't accept this because it takes the wrong polit- political line uh and if so he tried to write a letter to the editor to be published in the new states and they wouldn't even allow they wouldn't allow the anti-communist line so to speak to be mentioned <laughs> they wanted to totally cancel this this uh, other other narrative that, 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 that uh, of what had happened in barcelona um and um uh, and so this so then um so then from then on from that, from june 1937 Orwell remained a doctrinaire, dogmatic socialist who wanted everything to be owned by the government and everybody to be a government employee. Uh, that he didn't, he didn't uh, uh, in the slightest uh, abandon that position. But he was absolutely uh, uh, quite vitriolically opposed to the Communist Party um, and anything, to any uh, you know anything. Um, that emanated from the Communist Party, or anybody who sounded like a communist, uh, uh, you know, came in for his uh, fierce opposition. And of course, I expect that some people here will, have, will know that um, when the Labour government came in, um, they had this secret government department to combat communist influence. See, the, the Labour government, by our standards today, was very left-wing. They, they nationalised uh, a fifth of the British economy in a few years and they, and they apologised for the fact this wasn't socialism, it was just the beginning of a move towards socialism, uh, uh, that they would take over the commanding heights of industry. But the, all the leaders of the Labour Party in Parliament were tremendous anti-communists. I mean, you, can, you cannot exaggerate how anti-communist they were. Uh, you know, they very much supported the... Fam- they took part in the formation of NATO, they also insisted, or they allowed Attlee to get away with insisting that Britain have its own independent deterrent. In other words, Britain should have its own atom bomb outside of NATO, right So uh, they fought the Communists in Malaya, the communist guerrillas. In fact, you know, um, that was still going on when I was a little kid. Right? that's when I got the idea that communists and terrorists meant the same thing. Um, and, but, but anyway, um, uh, so the, the, you know people like Michael Foote and um, uh, uh, people of that ilk, uh, um, and Iron Bevan, they were very left-wing. Even, even um, someone like Ernest Bevin, uh, would be, we would consider very, very left-wing in their economic policy. Uh, but they were fiercely anti-communist. Uh, and after all, the communists, one of the things the communists did in every country they took over, was to wrap, wrap up the social democrats. The, co- the corresponding parties to the Labour Party and, and eliminate them, liquidate them. So, uh, so you know that it's a sort of. But anyway, so Orwell's like this. So Orwell was very much in tune with the Labour Party at that point. And in fact, Orwell, I, I suggest in my book that Orwell uh, was a Bevanite. An Iron Bevan was the was the left wing of the Labour Party in Parliament, um, and. Um,
4: Father of the NHS. So. Uh, it, well, there were many fathers of the right. NHS,
1: but but actually, the real the real sort of defining moment of Bevanism occurred after Allwell's death, and that was when uh, the Labour government, after giving every in this new National Health Service. Thanks, Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Hope to see you again. Well, I hope
0: I'm off on a date when you have one of these. <laughs> okay. That's
1: what stopped me. Um, so. Um, uh, the, the Labour government introduced the National Health Service and it's all completely new and um, everything was free on prescription and so there are stories and that, that they might be true, I don't know there were stories that people would have like 20 sets of eyeglasses or they would get, they would get enough cotton wool as a medical supply on the NHS to stuff a sofa, you know things like that. Uh, but, uh, but that, so that was the that was that was the uh, but that's what you expect. I mean, that's what economic theory predicts, whether it's Praxeological or Chicago, um, and um, and uh, so um, after after this had gone on, I mean, the Labour Party, these Labour Party people, they were very intelligent people. They weren't idiots, and they weren't um, they weren't people like um, you know. Um, uh, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> they, they, they really, uh, they really, really were. But this was all new. So what they did, they did the rational thing. They introduced some payment, minimum payment for a National Health Service prescription. It might have been like uh, 50, fifty. It wouldn't be fifty because there was pound shillings, and pence back then. But it might have been what we would call two and six. In other words, two shillings and sixpence. Might have been something like that. Some modest sum that everybody would have to pay to get a prescription. Right. Uh, anybody could afford it. Even a tramp on the streets could beg it in half an hour. Uh, so, but, uh, but then the left in the Labour Party in Parliament revolted against this. The whole principle of it being totally free was being breached, and the leader of that was Bevan. Uh, but but uh, but Orwell was associated with Bevan and praised Bevan a lot, uh, even though he didn't live to see that Bevan Bevanite um, Bevanite uh, rebellion. So. So Orwell died, uh, strongly committed to socialism uh, in the most uncompromising form, and was com- constantly complaining the Labour government wasn't m- moving fast enough to eliminate every trace of capitalism, uh, and at the same time looking forward to a possible war with um, uh, w- a possible war with uh, Soviet Russia. Um, and very much very much in sympathy with, um, what's his name, James Burnham, who had been a Trotskyist in his youth but became the sort of, he became the sort of fount of ideology of, of post-war conservatism which was dominated by anti-communism. Uh, that was James Burnham. And, uh, you know, um, Orwell always took an interest in James Burnham and reviewed all his books. And that last book, The Struggle for the World, I think it's called. Um, the 60s. He, he, he he reviewed that and uh, and he said and, and Burnham said we've got to um, politically unite the British Empire with the United States. We've got to nuclear bomb Soviet Russia before they get the bomb, and, got, and we've got to make the Communist Party illegal and all this. He had all this and and, and um, well. If you read his review, he said, well, the, you know, there's a lot to be said for all this. But um, the communists are not. If you've known a lot of communists as I have. You know that um, there's a high turnover in the communist movement; they don't last, uh, and uh, so this this uh, this great army of supporters that Stalin is supposed to have in the West is really doesn't really isn't really as as, as strong as it looks. And so, although uh, you know he's got, he's got nothing, obviously got nothing against these measures in principle. If the situation were that dire, uh, he says, no, we don't need to do all those things because um, it isn't that serious. Uh, we've got, he said, I think he said we've got 20 years to think about it.
2: So even though he's a he was a socialist, he was strongly anti-communist. Yes. But what what do you what kind of state
1: was he looking for? You know, Orwell was was concerned to he was concerned to uh, to find out whether uh, a. A totally nationalized economy, a totally state-owned economy, could preserve civil liberties, and he wanted this. And he kept saying that he wanted this. Um, and uh, he met in occasionally. He says it may not be possible. We just, we might just have to accept the fact. You see, you see, you have to understand that Orwell, like a lot of socialists in the thirties, believed that the coming of collectivism was unstoppable. Now, it, it wasn't a question of oh, it's a good idea. Let's try it. It was. The whole development of modern industry—they believed, of course—they all knew nothing about modern industry. It was total total ignoramus when it came to anything economic. Uh, but he, but he had been told by all these wise professors uh, who uh, were left wing economists, and uh, uh, you know that some um, uh, that circumstances were such that capitalism was in its last throes uh, on on the ropes, and it couldn't survive. And therefore, there was going to be a form of collectivism coming. And so paradoxically, this leads to Orwell becoming, his fears that it might be undemocratic leads to him becoming more concerned to get, because then if the sooner it comes, the, the bigger a say we'll have in, in how it works. So if we, if, if we can bring in um, uh, collectivism, we'll make sure that it's democratic. Or we'll do our best to make sure he has, a, he has a doubt. He actually mentions the possibility it may not be possible.
2: So, and he reads um, he reads the road, road to Serfdom when it comes out, and he yeah. says um, he agrees with Pro- Professor Hayek and his concerns about socialism, but thinks that Hayek is completely woefully naive about the totalitarian tendencies of capitalism. Right.
1: Yeah,
2: is that basically the sum of it?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, that's that review is very interesting because he begins by saying, it's a joint review. <coughs> he jointly reviewed The Road to Serfdom in 1944. Um, uh, he jointly reviewed The Road to Serfdom and a book by Connie Ziliakis, who, despite his name, is an English MP who was... Um, known as a crypto-communist. In other words, he would always vote the communist line. Um, although that wasn't to last, because what, Orwell didn't live to see this, but, um, or did he? Maybe he did live to see it, but maybe he never commented on it anyway. Uh, that when Tito revolted against the Soviet domination, um Iliarchus supported Tito. Uh, and thus, all the, all the progressive-minded people who have been praising Konin Ziliakos suddenly started denouncing him. But anyway, uh, he, he, he Orwell reviewed these two books, the book by Konin Ziliakos, Crypto-Communists, and The Road to Serfdom by Hayek. And it's very interesting review. And what he says at the beginning is something like this. I won't remember it exactly, but it's something like this. Um, uh, we have here two books. One of them says that... Um, that uh, uh, socialism can only lead to a, a, a totalitarian hell. He may not use those words, but something like that. And he says, the other one argues that uh, that not having socialism, having laissez-faire, will lead to a, t- a totalita- totalitarian hell. And then comes the sentence, I do recall accurately, or says, um, the tragedy is they may both be right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Um, so that was, you know, that was all. But the, but it's quite clear if you read that carefully, you know, Orwell says he calls he calls um, Hayek's views unfashionable. That's an interesting choice of words because because what it's saying to people is you don't want to be the kind of person who dismisses something just because it's unfashionable. That's obviously wrong, uh, you know. So he's actually saying this Hayek's got something to offer you or to read it. Uh, As clearly as he could do and get away with still being uh, a bona fide leftist, Um, but um, yeah. So um, uh, yeah, he. he, I mean, I think you know, it's it's open to speculation. But if Orwell had lived for another twenty years after 1950, uh, he might have um, might very well have given up socialism, because after all, nobody was expecting, and Orwell didn't live to see the prosperity that then developed. You know, everybody assumed that, you know, remember that Britain had had a slump in the 1920s when the rest of the world was having a boom. Britain had a slump. Um, And the slump was focused in all the big, old industrial areas, and especially the shipbuilding areas, like Clydeside and uh, Tyneside and South Wales and uh, and, uh, um, those kind of places. Um, And um, so so, so Brit- British people alive at the end of the Second World War had never really known a period of real prosperity you know it because the because the there had been this slump conditions and high unemployment in the 20s as well as the 30s um, and and there was a general expectation that uh, since the war was over unemployment would shoot up and there would be a slump you know as as as, as the, the, the Folklore has it that that's what happens when you end a war, you know, because you're not stimulating the economy with war production. That's the way people thought. But of course, um, uh, in the fifties, there was this amazing boom throughout the Western world, including Britain, uh, and all didn't live to see that. And that might have changed his mind, because he might have, it changed his mind in the sense that he might have started taking seriously the idea that capitalism wasn't finished. It wasn't inevitable that capitalism was was in its last throes, and actually, that capitalism,
2: far from immiserating <clears throat> the worker, enriches the enriches people at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Right? So,
0: can, can I ask? Uh, you know, you say you're more concerned about. You know, like Trump is not a fascist, but the Marxists. Our, uh, like you know, you would support Trump, but so much of what said about
1: it Well, you know, yeah. Trump. Trump had many opportunities to introduce authoritarian measures and didn't.
0: Like,
1: well, he could have said when COVID got serious, or people thought it got serious, he could have said, "This is a serious. We will have martial law." He could, he could have got away with that. Uh, but he didn't. Um, no, Trump is a uh, Trump is a is a is a is a genuine believer in democracy and civil liberties.
3: I, I if uh, I mean isn't he repeating? Uh, he said he lost, or he actually won the election when he lost the election, right? I mean, he's repeating that he that the election. was right. stolen well,
1: from him. Like, He's just saying there was fraud in the election. Yeah. I mean. Well, I, I mean there's
3: there's fraud in every election, but it, didn't he, he's specifically saying that he that he won he when he,
1: he he was <clears throat>
3: lying about winning an election when he did not inciting people.
1: Oh, I don't think he was lying. I said look I think I think he was he was saying what he genuinely believed if you and believe I, I, I happen to agree lie. with him I think that, he, that so. he did win the election. <laughs> But but um, but he has accepted it. He's accepted it. He's not said uh, we, you know, go, go on the streets and fight the present regime. Well, He's,
3: didn't he say go down like let's march down to the white to the no, Congress? No, no and this is all. Fight like this is all leftist and,
1: propaganda. No, no, he didn't and, say anything like that. No, I mean, he was no, big about but it. Uh, you know, I mean,
3: um, trial by combat is what I think. Um, one of his. Uh,
1: comrades said? What one of his comrades said is not what he said. I mean, come on. <laughs>
3: but it's at the same speech. It's at the same rally that, that stirred these no, no, people up.
1: I don't. I think that's all I mean, that's all nonsense. I mean, I think that Trump uh, said that he won the election, meaning that if it had been there'd been no fraud, he would have won it. Uh, but he, uh, then he eventually accepted it. I mean, I, I, I don't know what else he could do.
4: Well, he's still putting out press releases that says he's the, the president. So I haven't that, seen so that. Exactly is that true? Accepted. I don't believe yeah. that's true. Um, he well, he, he emails now because he doesn't yeah, have Twitter anymore. <laughs> or, or and I think media. he
3: started, it, it might sound official, but it's like the office of the ex-president. Yeah, which is
1: just him. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. it. He accepts that he's no longer the president. I mean, he isn't the president, and I think we all accept that.
3: But he was that's totally he stirring that. up uh, people thinking that the election was stolen from him, and it was. So he got less. And, I mean, so he got more look, votes whether,
1: than... whether it was or it wasn't, I think that it's clear that he sincerely believed that it was.
3: Okay. But, like, as far as numbers and actual vote totals goes, he lost,
1: right? Right. But the actual vote totals include lots of fraudulent votes. I mean, that's the argument. Is that true? Probably. Uh, I think it is true. I but, I mean, you, you don't think answer. it's true, so you don't know it's true. You just said you well, think it's true. Well, I think it's true. But, but you don't know the opposite is true uh, either. Right?
0: I mean, you're relying on facts that are given to you by somebody else, but, uh, right? I mean, what's
1: true? Who knows? I mean, the Republicans in all those states called for audits. And there hasn't been an audit, you know. I mean, uh, I mean, if you, if you pass laws that say that people can can vote weeks before the election and weeks after the election, um, and think, you know all the things like that, bye bye, Evanses. Then uh, you know you're asking for fraud.
2: On, Wait, but it's, it's going to. Say Uh, uh, And there's been been no investigation of these voting machines and how they can be hacked. What about the fact that he passed the two biggest budgets ever seen in the entire history of the the country? That's not very free market. I don't say he's a
1: complete free market person, but he's more free market than the Democratic Party.
2: But it's an open question whether his election has been good for liberty, because he's basically completely radicalised the lefts. Which in the left was radicalized before. I know. He's he's a response to the radicalization. He 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 basically threw petrol on the fire of extreme left. You have to say gasoline in this continent. I uh, knew it.
4: We're hip. We're a hip group. But well, one thing that gets me about both of the major parties in the states, and in any of the modern democratic countries where there is two big democratic, uh, big electoral parties or big electoral coalitions, is that any group that's 40 to 50% of the voters is going to be very multifaceted, so there's no one automatic um, type of Trump voter or type of, type of Biden voter that you'd be able to categorize. Right. I mean, there are genuine neo-fascist paramilitary groups with, complete with the swastikas or the right. fascia And, with a, the, and how the many of those are the there in the entire country? And then there's people About like my parents who would never even go 200. to a Trump rally... But didn't want their taxes to go up when they were retired, and for that the Trump coalition to include yeah. both of them. And yeah, you know the Proud Boys are a sort of attention grabbing, whether it, whether they're a serious paramilitary threat or a poser paramilitary threat,
3: or or a uh, an excuse ex- for if ExCon to do some uh, some grifting, some grifting, and and uh, I'm an informer, but that that it's.
4: It, it, sociologically, there's such a big coalition there on each side, whether it's for you know, the Sanders movement or when Hillary Clinton was running, or wh- whoever ended up voting for Biden for a wide variety of reasons, from you know former Republicans to uh, like I, mar- I married a red diaper baby, married into a Marxist family. My wife's parents had never voted for a Democratic presidential nominee in a general election. Ever until 2020, they would always Democrat, vote green for a from some marginal oh, Marxist party until Joe Biden because they were so scared that Trump would dispute the election that they piled on. They wouldn't right. even do this yeah. during the Vietnam War, right? They that you know, 1968 they were too young because the voting age hadn't been changed yet, and by the time they got to 1972, they were so far gone into Trotskyism that they weren't
2: going to waste their time on. Uh, on George McGovern. Well, they must have really mistreated you if you became a libertarian. And my was wife's parents. My wife's oh, parents.
4: She picked my me. Yeah.
3: And his wife's birthday is May 1st, too. They love that. So, you love communist birthday parents birthday? having a baby with the May 1st birthday? Right, That's got to
4: be pretty right, good. So, right. so, my daughter has have two you,
2: Trump voting
3: grandparents ha, and two Trotskyist
2: grandparents. Have you have you had any rousing debates with your in laws, or do you just leave it aside? More than you would imagine.
4: Uh, I actually probably mellowed. I've been with her for 13 years now. But it's now, great. But mellowed over
2: time. I'd rather debate uh, Trotskyists than. Uh, Regular person on the street, because someone needs to really think about issues to come to the position. Mm-hmm. You know, you usually get a better argument out of them.
3: And yeah, and 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 for communists, they do tend to be more t- principled. At least they're know.
4: anti-Stalin. I found <laughs> pro-Stalin, you know, millennials online who know zero point zero. But the Soviet Union did nothing wrong, dude. You've just been taken yeah, in by corporate establishment and, 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 and establishment bourgeois academia, like. Jesus. Wow, even even these wrinkled, you, you know, uh, entourage around my, my wife's parents don't have any illusions about Stalin being a great guy or Mao never making mistakes.
2: You know, oh, they're they're yeah. not
4: that far gone. I, yeah, but people twenty five years old or younger
2: don't had, don't. Even, I remember the fall of the Berlin Wall. They don't. I think you know? the best. Apparently <laughs> I thought the best thing that could be said for Trump was that he wasn't Hillary, um, <laughs> but.
1: No Trump. I, I mean, like I, I think. I, look, I think Trump. There's all sorts of things wrong with Trump, but I think he's the lesser evil, well, um, I mean, and he's the one person who can stand up to the left.
2: When someone's that evil, when when there, when someone's so evil, it's easy to be the lesser of two evils. And what's evil? about, Well, the, well the you face, think Trump is that no, evil? No, well, I mean in the fa- in the face of in the face of the evil that we're facing from the left. Pretty much anyone would have been a good candidate. Well, that's true. But well, that's true. But, um, but Trump is the one say, person who could stand up to. Well, them. and also he pissed off the neocons, which was quite enjoyable to, but to observe. It was enjoyable to see him both piss off the left and the right. But I think in terms of creating division, it. I don't know if the doctrine that the elite want to divide and conquer is true. But if they, if it is, then Trump is great because he's divided people more than ever. He's had a radicalizing effect and made people hate each other even more. I
1: don't know that that's true. You see, well, I think I think I think that I think you, you have to realize just how radical things were before Trump took over. I Trump know. is a symptom of the of the of the reaction to this radicalization.
2: That's one way of looking at it, and it's very so Hegelian. It's it's very Hegelian. Oh, I'm, that, I'll That's drop it immediately. That it's Hegelian. Really, yeah, right?
1: I don't want to be associated with Hegel. But uh, no, seriously. I mean, um, I think that, that that Trump is the person who stood in the way and said no, and he spoke plainly instead of and, and didn't go along with the left on so many things, like so many Republicans have. Uh, and he, you know, he did a lot of good things. I mean, he, you know, he he deliberately adopted a, a, a policy of withdrawal from. Various parts of the world militarily. Um, and well, I don't
2: think he delivered on those promises. No,
1: not as not as fully as he might have done, but to some extent, he moved in that direction, and uh, certainly didn't start any new wars. That's I
2: did actually something. I was it is something, and it's sad that that's the standard of good. Mm-hmm. You know, not starting any new wars. He came close, but, but it didn't quite happen. I would see mm-hmm. I would say that.
1: i don't i don't think it came close when he bombed
2: syria i was not surprised because that's what exactly what unlike a lot of people i expected him to do it but the day when he sold he signed that weapons contract with saudi arabia when i I was actually depressed that day i was like wow that is really really depressing
1: you see you see one of the things that irritates me a bit about anti-war people is they don't understand that if you want the United States to withdraw and not be so interventionist, the price you pay for that is uh, you allow regional spheres of influence where you let people do what they want to do and you don't get, uh, you don't get morally outraged by the fact that the Saudis are committing atrocities in Yemen, for example. If you're, well, gonna, if, you're that, say, if you're gonna if you're gonna say if you're gonna say we're gonna adopt adapt our policy to whenever anybody any part of the world does something we don't like, you're back into this uh, continuous interventionism thing. You in, non-intervention pulling back means parts of the world are going to be spheres of influence for other countries.
2: Okay,
4: yeah, no, of I think probably the the sphere of best, influence sir. to Iran also rather than using the Saudis.
1: Well, you know my Gulf th- Kingdoms as a, you know my theory proxy, about, you know my theory. You know my theory. You probably Not don't
4: particular one, but perhaps you
1: probably don't. My theory is this: that um, <coughs> when the Trump regime took out what's his name, uh, oh, so, 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 know, Soleimani yes. or whatever so- his name was, yeah. that was a deal he'd done with the with the Iranian leadership, and they were going to fuss about it for mm-hmm. a, six months to a year, and then they were going to come to the table and make a, make a new deal. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Biden has like he's ruined so many things. He's ruined that. Uh, but that was that's my theory. It was I think that he did the biggest favor he did to anybody was to was to uh, what's the, what's his name? The Ayatollah um, uh, with that, Khamenei. I think, because, yeah, yeah. Uh, because Khomeini, because um, because uh, what's his name was uh, was threatening to, to be the real power in Iran. And he and he and he w- it would have been much more of. Of a totalitarian regime, you know, and it, it, so I think that I, I thought I, I looked at that, and within five minutes I'd worked out that theory. Uh, I think that Trump did it in a, co- and they gave him the coordinates. They said to him, "Look, he's going to be here on this air, aircraft runway at this at this point in time. There's your chance to take him out." And Trump said, "Okay, I'll take him out." I think that's what happened. And by now, Biden must know this, uh, but of course, Biden is guy anyway. I don't
0: want to overstay my welcome here.
1: But no, you don't. I a pleasant, yeah, it's, probably,
0: uh, I think I might have to get again. I'm, like, I'm, I'm leaving for St. My wife St. Louis in the morning, or at
3: some point.
0: So, a friend of mine suggested that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Dogecoin are a place to store to inflation. Ooh, that, <clears> that, and I sent a friend. Request. That these are being rolled out, um, you know, by central banks to capture the newly printed dollars for investment because without cryptos the money would go into Wall Street and we'd begin to see uh, we would visually see, right, just hyperinflation.
1: Well, we are seeing a sort of strong increase in inflation, although I don't what think mean, they'll allow inflation? it to come to hyperinflation. I I mean, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think we'll ever see hyperinflation in the United States.
4: Uh, hyperinflation, I just read Sebastian Hopper's memoir that. about the Weimar Republic and the rise of Hitler. And it's like the way people use fascism then versus fa- the mm-hmm. way they use fascism now. When hyperinflation was like millions of percent inflation per year, right? <laughs> or sometimes in in a month, yeah. yeah. Where it's just beyond sort of like the Carter administration, like eleven percent, or I guess under um, uh, James Callahan in, in the seventies. You know the five percent pay increases weren't enough to keep up with fifteen percent inflation or something. Right. Like that. Price inflation,
2: right. huh? Sorry, it gets confusing because obviously there's two meanings of the word inflation, which mm-hmm. is inflation of the money supply and inflation of the right the cost consumer price. price. So I would right. say price inflation or mm-hmm. monetary inflation. There, there is something. a
3: difference, uh, but yeah, people in America do tend to use them. Right, we have you know, an explosion of the, the money people supply. People everywhere,
2: apart from people who money. are economics geeks, use them and you just mean... But sometimes when someone says inflation in an economic context, I say, mm-hmm. price inflation, do you mean right. price inflation? Because I want to make sure you don't mean printing the right. money, but you actually mean the increase of prices. So the conspiracy theory, which I don't use that pejoratively because some conspiracy theories are true, uh-huh. is that the government is happy with crypto because... Crypto is absorbing the inflation, and it, that's a really interesting hypothesis. How would you possibly prove it one way or another? And but
1: did I mean I, I thought that um, I don't know anything about it, but I've just from I, what I've been told that that uh, Bitcoin began as as a purely individual initiative by someone, right? It wasn't a government sponsored thing.
0: Well, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, whether Bitcoin, the origin, but there's a lot of different cryptos. There's crypto exchanges, right? You know, I think Bitcoin's unique in the in that it's decentralized. Um, coins like Dogecoin and uh, Ethereum are uh, there's centralized control somehow. I guess in, in the number, like how it gets issued, is centralized. So I don't know. I don't follow cryptos. That was a theory that a friend of mine suggested. He's a gold bug. Um, and so he's really mad about these cryptos you know because he's holding that in gold
2: <laughs> yeah and gold's done nothing <laughs> gold's done, it's like he's it, mad about
0: it. <laughs> like, gold
2: will do
3: something when uh, the
2: servers uh, give up sad if I put in all if I put all that money I put into gold's instead of listening to Spandau Ballet I <laughs> <laughs> I should have listened to uh, whoever was going on about crypto and I would a you know Anyway You know this I much think is true. That concludes the cute question and answer section of the evening. Now we'll just maybe say some hellos and goodbyes.